Today we're talking about Psalm 51, um, and it's a beautiful, heartfelt, um, desperate psalm of repentance. Um, but we need some context before we can dive into what that means, because context, especially speaking scripturally, is really important to how we understand scripture and how we interpret what it means for us. Um, so this week, I spent my afternoons with a sweet little almost three-year-old, um, and we had a great time. And part of what I did with said three-year-old is I um, put him down for a nap every day. And part of his nap time routine is reading a book. Um, he chooses a book, and you read it, and then you put him down. And so um, we read a number of different children's books, some more than others, throughout the week. Um, but one of them that he chose... Uh, as I was reading it, I was like, oh my goodness, this sounds really familiar. Oh my goodness, this is a children's version of what happened prior to Psalm 51. So that book was Curious George Cleans Up. And what happens in Curious George Cleans Up is this. The man in the yellow hat uh, comes home with a new rug. George is stoked. Naturally, it's soft. Um, he likes the way he feels on his toes. So the man in the yellow hat leaves, and George decides he wants a glass of grape juice. <laughs> Why wouldn't he? And then he decides he wants the grape juice and the rug at the same time. And so he decides to stand on the squishy rug with his full glass of grape juice, decides, actually, I want to jump up and down on the rug with my full glass of grape juice. And naturally, as with most Curious George stories, he spills his grape juice all over the brand new rug. So what is George going to do? Well, he's going to try to clean it up. First, he tries paper towels. That doesn't work. Then he decides soap cleans things, and the more soap, the better. So he gets all the soap from the house, um, dumps it on the spot, and then, as you can see, uses the hose to get the water into the house to clean up his mess before the man in the yellow hat gets home. Uh, so he does, of course... The house is full of water and bubbles, and he's distressed, and what is he going to do? The man in the yellow hat's going to come home and be mad at him, um, so he gets a water pump, um, like George has access to, and pumps all the water out, and then finally, um, all that work, and it did take the, the grape juice off the rug. The man in the yellow hat hardly knows until he comes home, steps on the rug, and it's wet, but... The end of the story is that George did it. George cleaned up, cleaned up his mess, made it work. So that's curious George cleans up. And our backstory is a little bit different, a little less cute and innocent. It is more like King David covers up. Um, obviously, I'm not a graphic design artist, but you get the idea. Uh, King David... Um, who is this psalm is attributed to um, had some stuff that he tried to cover up um, because he didn't like the idea of getting in trouble for the choices that he made. So part of preaching is that you get invited into the process with whoever is giving the sermon. So every week we learn a little bit about Dave um, through the way that he processes scripture, what he you know, the conclusions he comes to, the things that stand out to him. And so this morning, I get to invite you into my process a little bit, um, the way that I prepped this sermon. 
Um, and I wish I could say that it was prettier <laughs> than it was, but it wasn't. Um, it was hard. And I want to, oh, the backstory to Psalm 51 is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, and I'll give the outline for those of you who might not be as familiar with it. Um, king David, he is the king of Israel. Um, his troops are at war. He's at home. He goes out onto the roof of his palace overlooking the city one night, sees a woman bathing. That's Bathsheba. He sees her bathing. He lusts after her. So he sends for her, brings her back, has sex with her, sends her home. She sends him a message, says, hey, I'm pregnant. And he's like, oh, shoot, what am I going to do? I better call her husband back from war to give me a report and then try to convince him to go home and sleep with his wife so that nobody knows that that's actually my baby. So he brings Uriah, her husband, back from war. Uriah says, hey, this is what's going on. David says, great, thank you for the update. Now go home, have a good night with your wife. And Uriah says, I can't, the troops are at war. I can't go home and sleep with my wife. That's not right. God's law says I'm not supposed to do that. So he sleeps with the servants that night. David finds out he didn't go. And he says, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I'll get him drunk, and then he'll go home and sleep with his wife. So the next night, he gets Uriah drunk, says, go home and sleep with your wife. Uriah doesn't go home and sleep with his wife. He sleeps with the servants. And so Uriah goes back to war, and David is trying to figure out what to do. And so his decision is to write a message to Uriah's commander, Joab, that says, hey, send Uriah to the front, draw back, let him be killed. And he seals up that, gives it to Uriah. Uriah takes the sealed message to his commander. All goes as planned. Uriah is killed. Bathsheba mourns. After her mourning, David marries her. That's the outline. Quick and easy, right? Uh, hear me say this right now. It's okay to wrestle with what's in the Bible. It's okay to not be happy about what you read. To read something and to say, why, God? That is not fair. I don't like that. That is okay. That is always okay. Just like the song said this morning, I will wrestle with your heart, but I won't let you go. We can wrestle, but let's not let go. And Dave told us last week, God's desire is for us to be authentic in prayer. And God's desire is for us to be authentic in our reading of scripture. To not pretend like everything is happy and joyful and perfect just the way that it is. Because it's real life. That was real life. And I think in this story, it's easy to downplay. Um, and I am just now realizing how much it was downplayed in my growing up. I heard about the story of David and Bathsheba, but I heard adultery. I heard they had an affair. I never heard that David raped Bathsheba. But David raped Bathsheba. So let me just give you a picture of this. So the castle's up high, right? And the homes are down below. So the castle already kind of looks out over the city. 
And the way that homes were structured in that time were kind of a compound setup, where the home was more along the outside, probably with a wall, and then an open courtyard, open air. And in the courtyard is where people would bathe because they're protected by those walls around the side. People can't look in from the street and see them. So David can look over and into the courtyard. Now, David walks out onto the roof at evening time. Never mind the fact that he probably should have been at war with his troops, but he wasn't. He walks out onto, the, onto his roof at evening time and looks out over the city. Bathsheba, it says, was doing her ritual bathing, so her monthly cleansing as a woman. Um, she was cleansing herself like she was supposed to under the law. Um, so, so she was doing her ritual cleansing because women had to do ritual cleansings because that was just part of the culture um, for the Jewish people. Um, there was almost certainly a time that was that time for women in the evening, a block of time where people knew this is the time for the women, whoever need to this day, to bathe, to do their bathing practice. And so let's not go walking into someone's house or, you know, looking around at this certain time in the evening. David almost certainly knew that time, yet he was out on his roof at that time of the evening, which in and of itself feels so disrespectful, so inappropriate, that he, that he would put himself in a position where it was more likely than not he would see something from his roof. So we're already in that situation with David. And then we see, we see that he um, sees Bathsheba. He thinks she's beautiful. Um, he lusts after her. And then he asks a servant, he says, who is this woman? Fair question, I suppose. You know, we didn't know who she was and he was interested in her. The servant's response is, isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? daughter of Eliam. Typical response, except that while David may not have recognized her from far away, he and Uriah were buddies. I didn't know that. It wasn't a random soldier whose wife he wanted. That was his buddy. Uriah and Bathsheba's father, Eliam, were part of David's 30 mighty men, his inner circle, his like, you know, his comrade buddies, they were, they were tight. So that answer alone, this is Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, daughter of Eliam, that should have snapped David out of it. Not that he should have needed snapping out of it in the first place, but that should have snapped him out of it. He should have been like, oh, whoa, okay, got it. That's Uriah's wife. That's Eliam's daughter. Oh yeah, and that's the granddaughter of my personal counselor. But it didn't, he sent for her, he brought her back. The, all the action verbs in, in that chapter are attributed to David. Sent, saw, took, lay with. Those are all action verbs um, in Hebrew when a word is written, it's it's a when a verb is written, it's attributed to a noun. That's kind of the sentence structure. 
Um, we do that sort of in English, but it's not the word itself. It's the sentence that shows us who, who does it. In Hebrew, it's the word. And those words are attributed all to David. David was doing the actions, not Bathsheba. And on top of that, women in that, at that time and in that culture, they were solely responsible for any sexual misconduct. If there was an adultery situation, it was the woman's fault. If there, you know, something happened outside or before marriage, the woman was stoned. Man might have gotten a slap on the wrist. But the women were responsible. And so Bathsheba most certainly knew that. She was not unaware of what would happen to her. I say all this because there, there are so many people who look at this story and who say she seduced him. This was an affair between the two of them. There's a movie that came out in 1951, David and Bathsheba. Do, are any of you familiar with that? Don't watch it. Please don't watch it. <laughs> Please don't, unless you have like somebody <clears throat> theologically trained there to like point out every single piece of it. Um, but in that movie, it is a love story between David and Bathsheba. She knew he would be out on the roof. She was like, you look lonely. So I decided to bathe while I knew you'd be walking on your roof. And then he brings her over and he's like, I'm not gonna do anything without your permission. And she's like, you have my permission. Uriah and I aren't in love. And then they have this ongoing affair. And like, that's the love story. And then, anyway, it's not good on a number of levels. But the point being, I know it's Hollywood, everybody wants a secret romance, but that comes from some people's truthful under like what they understand about that about that story people really struggle with this idea that king david the great king of israel how could he be a man after god's own heart and rape someone so it must have been bathsheba it must have been so i'm reading this and i'm so angry so angry David, so angry at this society, just angry. And a lot of people throughout history, rabbis, well-versed people, have also been in denial about David's role in Uriah's murder. They've said, hey, there's no way King David could have done this. Uriah really probably did, just he just died in battle, and that's kind of just how it happened. So they had an affair, and Uriah happened to die, and so, really, we're good to go. I mean, David, you know, he wasn't great, but wasn't that bad. Because how could King David be a man after God's own heart and murder his friend? Not to mention the however many other troops that probably had to die as well in order for an order like that to be given for one man to be cut down. I know it's not pleasant to hear those sorts of things, and I know that we don't talk about them much in church. So why, why then am I telling you all this? Why am I belaboring this point? I don't like the idea of rape and murder any more than you do. But knowing the full truth about the context it adds to the power of the prayer that is prayed 
and Psalm 51. And that's how scripture is. The more we learn about what it is and what they were saying and what they were experiencing, the more full our understanding is of the beautiful parts of scripture. We don't get one without the other. We can't just have beautiful things in scripture and pretend like the other things aren't that bad or let's just not talk about them. So that's why I'm making this point. Because we need to know. Because Bathsheba matters. Because David's full repentance matters. So Psalm 51 starts with, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, we don't know how long it was before David came to this point and fully acknowledged and admitted what had been going on. It could have been up to a year later. He could have been sitting with all this for a full year before Nathan came to him. Um, and Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and gives him a story and asks him to pass judgment. He says there's a rich man and a poor man. Rich man has flocks and flocks of sheep. The poor man has one lamb. He raised it with his children. It's like a daughter to him. It sleeps in his arms, eats from his table. The rich man has company. People come in. He needs to prepare food. He doesn't want to kill one of his lambs because he's selfish. And so he goes to the poor man's house, takes the one lamb that's like a daughter to this man, slaughters it, feeds it to his guests. King David, what should be done? And David is absolutely outraged. He says, death. That is completely unjust. He should be put to death. That is not fair. Here's the interesting thing. This situation, had it been real, the lawful uh, way of dealing with it would have been repay the man fourfold. That would, that would have been the law. And David is like, death. It's probably makes sense to me that David had been sitting with this guilt for so long that when he had an opportunity to find some kind of balance for himself by having someone killed in the name of justice, that that would maybe cancel out having someone killed unjustly like he had done because he was so torn for so long that, that all of that anger that he had for himself came pouring out onto this rich man in the story. And Nathan said, that's you. David convicted himself. And so then we get to the meat, to the beautiful poem of Psalm 51. So then, after I'm, I've been doing this research, I go back and I read Psalm 51. And my response to Psalm 51 is very similar to my response to the backstory. How dare he? How dare he think that he can just walk up to God and say, give me mercy? After everything he did, after all the people that he hurt and killed, how dare David think that he can request mercy? No. That would be my response. No. That was terrible. 
And that was my response when I first started reading Psalm 51. I'm like, why are we even doing this, Dave? <laughs> this psalm shouldn't count. That stuff was terrible. And it took me a while. <laughs> it took me a while. Sitting with it, I was angry. It didn't seem fair. Because in my mind, no, you don't get mercy for that. You don't. I don't know what it's like to be a king. I don't know what it's like to have the power to hold people's life and death in your hands. But I do know the feeling of wanting to cover something up. Have you experienced that, that desperation, that, oh no, I do not want anybody to know about this. Oh no, I don't want that person in particular to know about this. I mean, from the time we're kids, we do something wrong, and then we lie about it. Our parents didn't teach us to lie. There's, there's this desire that we have to hide, to cover things up. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They ate the fruit that was forbidden for them to eat. And God, they hear God coming, and they're like, oh no! We need to hide. Literally, also, cover ourselves. But then also they tried to cover up what they've done by blaming each other, blaming the serpent. It goes way back. And I think that that's something that we can all relate to, if nothing else. If we've done none of the other things that David did in this story, we can relate to that feeling. My boyfriend, Zach, loves speaker systems. He's great at researching them, knowing what to get, finding good deals. And one time I was at Zach's house and I was doing something near his speaker and saw a stand kind of like this. And I knocked it over. <laughs> and it fell on the ground and the stand tore out from the bottom of the speaker. And the corner of the speaker was kind of messed up. It is still messed up. Um, and there was a dent in his hardwood floor. Now, was my response, oh, I care so much for Zach, I'm going to go tell him, and I'm going to figure out how to make it up to him, and I just really, he's so important to me that I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to find him right now and tell him. No. I was like, can I fix it, can I screw it back on, and like tip it so that the corner that's broken doesn't show, and then I'm like looking at the floor like, how big is this compared to the other chips, and is, like, is he gonna notice this? I had no desire to tell him, and I had accidentally knocked it over. It wasn't something that I had done on purpose. It wasn't me being ruthless or selfish. I just didn't want him to know that I had done something wrong. Wrong. Nothing wrong. It was just an accident. So even in the littlest things, and I have been working hard for quite a while to be really intentional about not falling into that habit again of hiding things because I did that for a long time, and that'll tear you up. I can't imagine being David and hiding something that big, that awful, for that long. That must have torn him up. But David chooses to stop hiding. Even though it feels easier sometimes to pretend that we're not broken, David chooses to stop hiding. This is a psalm of lament, 
Um, but there are some key things that are typically found in psalms of lament um, that are missing from this psalm. Primarily, two accusations. In a psalm of lament, usually the author accuses God of something. God, why have you turned away from me? God, you've sent me down to the pit. They accuse God for something. And then they also accuse enemies. My enemies are around me. They want to kill me. My enemies. But in this psalm, David realizes that that enemy is himself. It wasn't God that did this to him. It was not others that did this to him. He did this to himself. And in the process, caused harm to a whole lot of people. So right away, the first verses of the psalm, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Go ahead and go to the next one, Sue. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. All those verses are centered on God. In the Old Testament, the word Hanan, um, that's the word that we see here for mercy. And that word in the Old Testament is the closest thing we have to the New Testament concept of grace. There's no, what we see as grace in the New Testament, there's, that's not used in the Old Testament. But we have Hanan, and that means to be merciful. It's this idea that somebody who has the power to be compassionate towards someone in need does that. They're compassionate toward the person in need. Um, and all of these requests that David is making are based on God's nature. All of his expectations are simply based on who he knows God to be. Not on what he's done. He knows that what he's done serves none of this. But they're based on God's nature, and it's God's love itself that moves God to meet those needs for us. It's not our merit. It's God's love. And yes, there's a lot of talk about self in this. That's the nature of the psalm. He's talking about himself and his experience and his sin. Um, but that talk about self, that focus on what he's done, turns him, eventually turns him outward toward God instead of turning him inward. How many of you have experienced that? You do something bad, and it turns into this like cycle in yourself. And you just feel bad, and then that makes you think this, and that makes you think that, and then you feel worse. And then, and then that, like, kind of pseudo-repentance that we do keeps us turned in on ourselves. But David, it's self, 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 self. Oh, I need you, God. There's no point in me thinking about myself if you are not part of this picture. He, can you go back to the first person? He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. How many times have you, have I, 
prayed a prayer of repentance. And really, it was more like a prayer of, please don't give me the full consequences of what I did. Dear God, I'm really sorry. And because I'm really sorry, you should let me off the hook from that punishment that should go along with what I did. I have prayed that so many times. I kind of thought I was repentant, but really I just didn't want to deal with what might happen because of what I did. But David's, at the forefront of his mind, is his sin. Not the consequences. Not my punishment. But my sin. It's in my face. I see it for everything it is. Dirty and disgusting and abhorrent as it is. I see that. Many of us grieve the consequences of sin, but not many of us grieve sin itself. And that's where we get into this next part that at first really bothered me. In verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned. You know, I thought I got over this and was like ready to plan a sermon, and then I read that verse again, and I was like, oh no, David. You did not sin only against God. You sinned against a whole lot of people Bathsheba, and Uriah, and your troops, and really your whole kingdom. So do not say you sinned only against God. Mm. Not okay. Hold on, Eric. Who is this God that you are imagining if this God can be the secondary? Recipient of a prayer of repentance. Who is that God? Obviously that God doesn't care that much about sin. And I had to sit with that. This picture of God that I had where our sin, I mean, like, he doesn't like it. God doesn't like it. But it doesn't hurt God like it hurts people, right? God doesn't, like, fully impacted by sexual assaults or by murder or by deceit the way that we are because we feel it, right? I see other people's hurt. In my empathy, I feel other people's hurt. I have felt that hurt myself. So, to say that God is the first one to go to when you have sinned and that sin has hurt somebody, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And I think that has something to do with my understanding of who God is and what sin is and some combination and relationship between those two. <clears throat> guilt is not the same as repentance. We can feel bad about something, but not be repentant of it. Because what comes after guilt? We can sit and stew in our guilt all day and nothing happens. We just feel bad. But when we repent, change happens. 
Because repentance starts with God. When we come before God, I, uh, a lot of times growing up I remember, and I mean, I partly remember because it's not just growing up, it's like my whole life. Um, I remember feeling so much more scared to like repent to another person than I was to repent to God. Because God has to forgive you, right? Like, you say, like, I'm sorry, God, and then God forgives you, and then, boom, you're good, no one's the wiser, said my prayer of apology, we're good to go. But if I have to talk to another person about it, who I impacted <laughs> with my poor decisions, that doesn't feel very good. So what does that say about what I believe about God and what God feels? If I believe that we actually are created in God's image, and that we have an empathetic God. We have empathy. That makes sense that, our, that God would have empathy. <laughs> and that it would be even bigger than we can comprehend. Of course God hurts when we hurt. And picture, I mean, think of a parent. A parent's hurts for their child. And God is an all-loving parent. He's our creator. I have this, I get this image in my head when I think about this of um, God as mama bear. And I'll stick with me on this. I know that we typically go to God as father, but we know that God is not gendered. God does not have a gender. He's just, he, there I go. God is just God. And that because all of us are created in the image of God, God is both father and mother. It's just the way that scripture is written, the way it was translated, and the context, they typically went toward male pronouns. So I get this picture when I picture David going before the throne, you know, falling on his face to repent. I picture him having to go before Mother God. Because we know that moms can be mad protective of their babies. And so he has to go to Bathsheba's mother God and say, I'm sorry. I know what I did. He has to go to Uriah's mother God and say, I know what I did. And because mothers feel so deeply for their babies, so intimately. And because the same God that is so angry at David's disobedience and sin is the same nurturing God that wrapped Bathsheba up and comforted her when she was mourning and told her that it was going to be okay when she didn't understand why this was happening to her. Same God. So David was willing to go before that God and to say, I have nothing. I have nothing except your mercy. And I know that's your choice. And that is how we approach repentance. I have nothing. Yeah, maybe be honest. Like, yeah, I kind of don't want these consequences. <laughs> but more than that, 
My sin is before me. It's right in front of me. And it's not going to go away without your mercy. David understood that. He didn't deny what he had done. He came before God. He understood that his transgressions against other people faded into the background when he was in God's presence. And it was an, I understand that right here, right now, this relationship, I'm picturing him in the throne room, that's why I'm going this way. This relationship is what matters the most. Because I not only sinned against you, I, you have worked and created things to protect the people that you love. And I trampled on those. I ruined those. People ask a lot of whys about God. Why did this happen? And in that moment, David is saying, I'm the why. It's not you, God. I'm the why. That doesn't mean we avoid humans who are impacted by our decisions. But when we do come, come to God first, we, we get a clearer picture of what's needed in our human relationships. In Matthew, it says that if you come to the altar and when you get there with your sacrifice, you realize that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice before the altar and go make amends and then come back and offer your sacrifice. We have to be willing to do the hard relational work, but it starts by understanding that our sin before God is no small thing. And I'm going to I'm going to just cruise through this next part cuz like I said, <laughs> I talk too much. Um, especially when I get worked up about something. So in uh, Psalm 51, verse 7, um, it shifts. There's a shift in what he's talking about. And he starts talking about the inward renewal. Like, yes, I did this. I need your mercy. And now please do something in me. Please do something. It says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And that word cleanse... Um, is the Hebrew word chata, and, and literally translated means de-sin. De-sin me. Take my sin away. And we have to acknowledge our sin before we can be de-sinned. But also, God's mercy is not limited by the scope of our sin. David can come before God and say, cleanse me. Desin my life and my spirit just as much as we can come before God and say, Desin me, even though we don't have a story like he does. God loves David no less than he loves us. God loves David no less than he loved Bathsheba, no less than he loved Uriah, because that is God's mercy, it's not limited. We know limits. That's our human existence. We have born. We have death. We have time. 
We have all these things. But that's not God's reality. God doesn't have to be limited by our human limitations, by our human understanding of things. We often hear the words, you know, create in me a clean heart, oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. We, I feel like I've heard them over and over in my time growing up in the church. We pray them, we sing them. I mean, create in me a clean heart, oh God, that I might serve you. That one, there's another one. They're all over the place, we sing them. And that's good because we like the words, we like that idea, we like that concept of cre creating me a pure heart. We want to be pure. But it's good for us that we want that as long as we understand that that's not an easy request. Easy for God, not so easy for us. David um, appreciated, he acknowledged whether he realized it or not, um, a promise that God made to us. In the book of Ezekiel, it says, I will take your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And David was saying, I want that. I want a different heart. But you can't get a new heart without taking out the old one. And it hurts, and it's hard. And sometimes you do have to face the punishment and the consequences for sin. And sometimes we do have to have those conversations with the people that we hurt. The request for a new heart, to create in me a clean heart. Create, that word is the same create that was used back when God created the world. It's a word that can only be attributed to God because it assumes ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created the world out of nothing. And so that same create is the word that's used for creating me a clean heart. It's saying, God, do what only you can do. I can't. I can't make my heart pure. I can't become clean. I can't make up for what I did. Only God can. And it comes hand in hand with change. If God creates a new heart in us, there will be change. I, If any of you have ever been a place like David, when you realize your privilege or your power and the way that you have been living your life up to that point had contributed to the oppression, to the hurt, to the marginalization of other people, if that really sits with you and you were upset about that, whether it was to someone personally or just being complacent in a system that keeps some people down, once that light clicks for you and you realize what you've been a part of, you cannot live your life the same way. You cannot. Your daily ins and outs of life will change. Yeah, I mean, I learned that, but do I really have to, you know, like change the things I listen to and the things I watch? Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I kind of, I realize that, but do I really have to like, you know, reconsider what I spend my time doing? Yes. Because you can't live any other way. That is what repentance is. It's saying, I tried the other way. I tried that. This is where it got me. I can't do that anymore. I'm done. I need something different, whatever it takes. I don't remember 
That's not true. I probably remember. It's been a long time since I prayed a prayer like David prays in Psalm 51 before planning the sermon, where I just laid myself out. And I said, God, I, I can't do this, whatever it takes. Change me, whatever it takes. That desperation. We don't pray like that very often that I know of. <laughs> Maybe you do. If you do, that's wonderful. Please teach me. But David was desperate. He knew that God desires our hearts. In the chapter before, that's God's statement. I desire hearts. I don't desire the sacrifice of animals. And David repeats that because that's important. He knows that sacrifices, he can't sacrifice his way out of it. It's the heart. And if our spirits are broken, all idea of our own importance is gone. That's not what we're thinking about anymore. Uh, my mentor in college used to remind me regularly that God did not promise us easy, but God promised us good. And repentance and heart change are not easy, but they are good. And finally, the last part of the psalm, um, he shifts to may please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem that you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. He's talking about his, the community. He shifts, he wraps it up with this picture of community being together, in this together. And that's what I hope that we can be. We don't talk about confession a whole lot in the Protestant church. But if we could practice confessing to each other, repenting to each other, I think that would make a difference in the way we repent to God and the way that that change sticks in us. Okay. Just deciding what to skip. Um, the psalm doesn't end with an assurance of forgiveness like many other psalms, many other parts. Um, there's no praise and joy at the end. Um, there's a vote of confidence, a trust that a broken spirit you will not reject. But there's no assurance of forgiveness at the end. Um, and I think that's an indicator that this is just the beginning. Our prayers of repentance are the beginning of something. The beginning of that new life. Beginning of an experience of life that's even more like Christ, who was the giver of self. So we've talked about wanting to be a praying community. Um, let's also be a repentant community. Unafraid to pray the prayers of confession and lament, even though they're difficult, so that we can continue to be changed and to be renewed by God's mercy alone. Amen.